1: You're listening to Text Message with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And we are back. Sorry about the brief interruption, but a few things happened. I had a holiday. I got engaged. Ian had some family (laughs) over or something. My my, uh, neck was itchy for a bit. Exactly, and it takes a while for Ian to scratch his neck because he's older. <laughs> but we are back, and thank you very much for bearing with us. I know it's been a hard slog to wait for over a month without a text message, but we are back, we're g- and we are gonna be, uh, we're going to get straight into having a look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks of tech rather than just trying to focus with a laser-like precision attack on the last few days. Um, and uh, thanks for staying with the show. Let's just hope the, uh, the juice was worth the squeeze. <laughs> we had a little... Re- union, didn't we, Nate, as well? We did CNET. Oh yes, we did. We should point that out. Ian yeah. and I both joined CNET's podcast for their 500th episode um, in various interview forms for that for that show, which is which is great now because it means that since Luke Westerway, uh, who was mostly hosting the CNET UK podcast since uh, Ian and I left uh, many years ago, um, they have handed it over to Andy Hoyle, um, who is also my brother and who has been on this show before. Now it's worth noting: 500 episodes of a podcast is always worth. Uh, Noting And uh, even more notable since Ian and I hosted it in the early days, which I think gave it the platform from which it leapt to its current heights. And uh, looking forward to what Andy does uh, over there with it, too. So well done to those guys. Uh, Let's get on, though, with our show, Ian. Apple's new UK headquarters is going to move into the Battersea power station in London, on the bank of the River Thames. Currently, Apple has a number of offices around the capital that houses most of its people. But this big new space is going to be built within the station itself and I think open around 2020, something like that, 2021. And the, the, the station itself, for those of you who aren't aware, for, I mean, it's most notable maybe for appearing on the cover of Pink Floyd's album Animals in the 70s. Also it's been in a, in a number of films. It was in 1984, it was in The Dark Knight, it's been in Doctor Who. It's been in uh, it was actually in one of Alfred Hitchcock's films Sabotage in the 30s. It was also and this is my favorite one of all these because I'm not really into films. It was in the Colin McRae Dirt series of games, the Rally the Rally games where you could race through a racetrack that had been built within the power station. So that was that was pretty neat. And Apple's going to um be one of the many companies and uh, estate development people who is helping turn this site finally into something more usable. And there'll be 4,000 homes there and shops and all sorts. But uh, I think it's a a very interesting place. And in a way, it sort of feels quite Apple-like. The company has a habit of taking sort of old or listed buildings and doing something very um, elegant with them on the on the inside. What do you think, Ian?
0: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, actually, because uh, if you think about sort of Covent Garden, they, the Apple store there is actually quite a, they've done quite a good job with that, but they haven't really, it's very minimal and it's uh, pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, it, anyone who's been to Apple's uh, UK, you know, in London, um, it's it's just an office, isn't it? Um, it's very nice, but it's not the most spectacular place you'll ever go. Uh, so I can see that why they might want to get everyone together in one nice place. Um, although it's not in the centre of town. So, I mean, you know, who cares? Honestly, it's the centre of town, isn't it? It's not the end of the world. Well, um, they're going
1: to build, I say they, the, the the site developers, are building a new underground station front, off the northern line to reach this new park. You know, it, Apple obviously is taking up a huge amount of the space in, in the area, but there are going to be thousands of people who who live there. There are shops. They're turning it into a shopping centre, restaurant district and all sorts. And they are going to have a new um, a tube exit on there. So finally something's going to happen. But I think it might be worth noting for our fellow British listeners and also anyone overseas who is interested in Apple and interested in, in a little bit of London history, I spent a good couple of hours researching facts about Battersea Power Station to try and work out sort of maybe why it's taken so long for someone to do something. Because with this site, if for anyone who doesn't know, this site has basically been active, inactive for over 30 years. Um, the the power station itself was built in two parts. It was the first part called Battersea A, which was built in the 1930s. It was like a, it was a coal power station, and then Battersea B was built in the 50s. And they were they were built so it looks now like one single building, even though it was actually two separate power stations. It's the largest building made of bricks in the entirety of Europe. It took five years to build, and it cost two million quid, two million pounds to do so in the 1920s. That's two million pounds in the 1920s to build. And six people died putting it together. Um, there's these big four iconic chimneys on the top that is where the coal um, exhaust, for want of a better word, <laughs> went from. And they're 101 meters in height at their very at their very peak. And didn't know this fact. They would it, the station was designed by a gentleman called Sir Giles Gilbert Scott, and he also designed. Uh, well, he designed Liverpool Cathedral, but he also designed the red the telephone boxes. Ah, interesting. Yeah. He also Uh, designed Bankside uh, Power Station in London, which is now better known as the Tate Modern Gallery yes and another another brilliant building that's uh, got a new lease of life and if you've
0: ever been in there they, obviously the turbine hall remains and is huge and a, a really interesting piece of ar- ar- architecture if you will um but also the, the the i mean if for people who don't know much about Battersea power station which is probably a large percentage they are having to do quite a lot of work to make it safe so the um the towers have been removed and are being rebuilt so they won't be quite original they because the whole structure structure was uh, really in bad way um, so it's quite interesting to see how much effort is going into keeping this building standing even though its original
1: purpose has long ended I mean it is beautiful but um it's a, it's, it's a fantastic building but it's been through so many troubles I mean Alton Towers bought the space in the 1980s at one point and proposed turning it into an indoor theme park how good it, would that have been it would have been amazing well it would have been great I mean they bought it for about 1.5 million pounds in 87 and they thought that it would cost about 30 or 35 million pounds to turn into a theme park but they over the years they recalculated it to, to an estimated 230 million pounds and so it was you know naturally halted um, there's been a whole load of other things that people have tried and failed like it's sort of like being yahoo ceo you sort of go into it with this curse that like no matter what great idea you try and come up with something terrible seems to be always looming over you chelsea football club apparently showed some interest in turning it into a stadium there'd been plans for it to be a big shopping center and it had just been planned or bought and then it fell through and this time this time 30 nearly 40 years after some of the initial proposals, it's going to be it's going to become something. Um, I mean, it shut down in uh, in 1975. The first part, the Batsy A, which was the oldest part of the building, was 75 when that shut down, and then Batsy Power Station B, the more recent side, shut down in 1983. So ever since 1983, it's been basically a building becoming more and more derelict this is hopefully with apple's help with the help of the people that are building this it's finally going to turn this part of london into something uh into something fantastic and memorable and great and uh and you know the fact that they're going to get a tube station means it won't be a pain in the balls to get there anymore bbc iplayer this is another story that came up over the last couple of weeks that i wanted to touch on because it's one of Ian and i's favorite topics the iplayer in its increasing march towards making sure only the british public is able to access its fantastic content is going to force users to start logging in and in order to log in to the iplayer to use it you're going to have to provide a postcode your own postcode where your license fee is registered to and because of that it will make it harder for people overseas to access. Now, firstly, this is feels kind of inevitable, right? They've been marching towards this uh, ever since we heard that they were going to force um, people to have a license fee to cover the iPlayer, which we're not going to go over again because we've beaten that horse to death at this point. But did this come as a surprise to you, Ian? Um, that's a good question. Somewhat, Thank you. Actually, because... Um, Give three reasons why.
0: Well, because I think the thing is that the BBC's always been quite wary of um, going anywhere near subscription because as soon as it starts to do a subscription, people start to say that there's no need for the licence fee. They can say, oh, well, we'll just do it as a subscription. And having a having a login and a subscription essentially for iPlayer is of a, a forward march in that direction and that's a bad move, I, I think. Um, also... <clears throat> It doesn't really matter, does it, if people from abroad watch with a VPN? Like, uh, it, it's not. There's no real. There's no real actual cost to data transmission anymore. Um, you know, you have to build the servers. That the the cost is very minimal, uh, especially with the way the BBC does peering. So there's not really a, a cost implication. What there is is obviously there are some people in the UK who choose not to have a license and still watch iPlayer, um, which was okay. You know there was, and I know they want to close that loophole completely, which I understand. But at the same time, again, you know some people probably can't afford it or whatever. Um, and I, I get, I think the world just keeps turning, doesn't it? So it it just sort of feels like an, another another thing where they're sort of moving away from that. You know, the funding model that works is a public service idea where we all chip in. And because of that, it's affordable for most people. Like Obviously, there will always be some people who struggle with it financially and those people should get it for free. But, you know, I, I, I worry that basically this route ends up in, oh, well, we'll just make it subscription now.
1: I agree with you on all those points, except for one, which is that it doesn't harm the BBC for people to be using a VPN to access. And the only exception I can think on off the top of my head is that the BBC has partnership deals or has broadcasting deals around other countries. I mean, BBC America, for one, and, you know, dozens and hundreds, really, of other other places around the world that very quickly broadcast some of the stuff that's broadcast in the UK. And that's certainly and, true, but it is and- a still a very small number of people ev- even attempting that in terms of having being able to say to partners we're doing our best to make sure that the money you give us to broadcast and syndicate this content you know is safe we're making these these efforts you know and i think that that i can't imagine that's the main reason certainly the main reason is is license fee based and and making sure people are paying for it in the uk but i can definitely see that as being you know a, a another argument but i think that you're right overall and uh, certainly it doesn't come as a major surprise to me but i did want to check something out and, and indeed have done which is on a i mean many many weeks ago we talked on a, another show about the iplayer where we wondered you know, the, the the iPlayer has always been great in that it is supported on an incredibly wide variety of devices. I mean, ever since the iPlayer existed, it was supported and indeed it was mandated to have to support any device that had a very large user base, which is why you could get the iPlayer back on those old creative MP3 players. It's why it was available on the PlayStation very early on. Early mobile phones, even Nokia feature phones and, and those <laughs> old phones, yeah. like they would stream onto little, we're talking pre iPhone here. You could access a video on demand streaming service back in, you know, 2007 or whatever. And they've always been very, very good at that and maintaining that legacy support for this wide array of devices. Not always with all the feature sets, but at least basic access. Providing a login requirement is going to be a big issue for anyone who has to go through. an an interface upgrade let's say which needs the support of manufacturers and manufacturers often aren't supporting legacy devices well you say that but I think that the move towards HTML
0: for the iPlayer might make that a little bit less of a problem as long as the uh, device in question has some way to input text which I can't imagine it wouldn't given that you've got to search Um, so I I suspect that's sort of taken care of but I could be wrong I'm not an expert
1: Well, I wanted to have a little check and I I wrote to the the BBC to find out their official stance on this. And I did get a response from their their press office who said that the announcement that they made about the login and the postcode requirement is only going to cover the website and the official apps. Ah, right. um, which, Which basically means that any other implementation of the iPlayer will not fall under this requirement. And the other thing that may or may not happen is if you're using a web browser on a very old device to access this, um, you know, will that, uh, you know, it may or may not work, basically. Like, you you may just need a more modern browser to access that particular website. Like, we've all seen those errors over the years. That raises a
0: follow-up question somewhat um, in in that I I wonder what happened. I mean, surely that just means that anyone could just access via, say, the API used for Uh, Smart TVs or something. So presumably we'll see a website pop up almost immediately that bypasses the login and just uses one of the APIs that's available.
1: Almost certainly, but these things are always a, a game of whack-a-mole, right? There's all, whenever a new yeah. restriction pops up, somebody else comes up with a hammer, and we'll see that. But at least you know, for anyone who's thinking, oh, my device is quite old, I don't know if this is going to work, basically don't worry. It's either your app or it's when you're on a desktop machine looking at the website. That's where it's going to affect you, and, and chances are that's where you're not going to have a problem logging in. In order to do this, um, but um, they do also say we're we're interested in being able to allow UK license fee to access BBC iPlayer while they're on holiday, because I'd asked about, you know, will this allow people to log in from overseas um, from a foreign VPN? not foreign VPN a foreign IP which at the moment they can't and I thought well if you log in and you're registered to your license fee there's no reason not to be able to log in from the beach in Spain which at the moment you can't do and that's what this uh, this answer is in response to Uh, while they're on holiday in the EU and last December we welcomed the EU proposing regulation to help make this feasible there are complex technical issues to resolve which we are investigating and will be dependent on what legislation is effect in the UK in the future that is a roundabout PR way of saying no no, this will not allow you to log well, in from overseas yet. That's
0: no surprise because it, w- it wouldn't be massively a big jump, would it, for people to start setting up services to allow people from abroad to watch um, by either sharing their login or by creating a th- an intermediary site that um, makes it look like one person is watching a thing and in reality it's someone else. But I, you know, it, I think they have to be quite careful and I can see why they would say no to that at the start.
1: Let us know what you think if you're in favour of these proposals. Almost every time we talk about a BBC iPlayer story, we tend to get about a dozen emails from listeners with a variety of opinions. We welcome those for next week's show. Podcast at natelangson.com or, of course, at text message pod on Twitter. Okay, talk talk. This came up uh, over the last couple of weeks. This, for those of you unaware, is one of the biggest ISPs in the UK. It's a major broadband provider and does TV and, and a bunch of other stuff. And they have been given a very large, in fact, I believe a record fine of £400,000 from the Information Commissioner's Office, which is the UK's watchdog for all things uh, data protection, after it failed to protect customers' After a hack where a lot of data was taken from their systems, this was about a year ago that the hack took place. It was filled with controversy. The CEO at the time was very uh, not necessarily defensive of of it, but but didn't was criticised for not being as on the ball as perhaps she could have been. And this four hundred thousand pound pound fine is in light of the how the system was basically. Um, how TalkTalk Talk let down its its customers. The ICO officially said on Wednesday last week that TalkTalk's, quote, technical weaknesses meant that hackers had been able to steal the data with ease, uh, in quotes, with ease there. Um, and basically, if they have had more attention paid to basic security, then maybe this hack could have been pre- prevented. Now, the breach actually affected over 150,000 people, subscribers to the service. Some Some people had... Uh, obscured credit and debit card numbers stolen in the in the uh in the attack and it also led to a trading impact of about 15 million pounds after TalkTalk Talk was forced to basically cut off access to some of its online services while it was trying to secure website its own websites um and it's it's been uh, it was basically a massive mess so they uh, talk talk perhaps in response and this is uh, based on a piece i saw in ars technica perhaps in response to this has said that it won't hike its prices at least for 18 months <laughs> uh which is uh, which is great and basically you know sky and, and a bunch of other virgin media like they're always raising their prices and talk talk says that it's it's not going to now oh, so. it, it's finished that's why i th- I imma- talk talk yeah
0: i I imagine it's got very little time left now i I cannot imagine that it can fully recover from this. I think the fine should have been much bigger i think I think I genuinely think that I mean someone did the maths, didn't they? It works out at like um a bit less than a five or a head or something, it's like three fifty or four quid or something um. Mm that's really not you know that's that's not enough i think it should be i think it should be nearly crippling the fine and i think that those customers should be compensated monetarily for the worry and the inconvenience because it is just not acceptable and the more com- companies i mean a 400,000 pound fine is nothing when you're talking about a company that has you know i mean it's part of a much bigger operation isn't it it's part of the carphone warehouse and you know and i i feel like if you're going to really get, make people pay attention to the the dangers of just sort of walking into data without understanding how important it is to keep it secure, then this is going to keep happening. If the if the fine is absolutely astronomical, then hmm. you will trigger people saying, "Look, this is actually a real problem. We need to absolutely make sure that there is no way." And especially, and this is I. Think particularly unforgivable with the the fact that it was an it was they blaming the acquisition of Tiscali. You know that Tiscali is an ancient company. I mean, it was it was started in you know when I was working at the BBC when I first started. It was the thing. It was like one of the very very few ways you could get video on demand over a phone line. Um And so you know, so it, it, it was obviously a very old operation. And they made the decision to fold it into theirs, and obviously just ignored all of the problems. And I mean, to be caught by an SQL injection is—I'm I'm dumbfounded.
1: I am. Do you want to give a brief overview of what an SQL injection is?
0: I, so the, the all SQL databases are—it's they are—they do a lot, and because they do a lot, it means that they're a really good way into systems um there's the old thing where if you you go into a a text field on a website and you write the right code and it is essentially it's drop database or drop table which is the SQL command you give if you want to d- delete something or you know remove something from a database so uh, and this is a way for hackers to cause absolute havoc if people aren't very you know responsible with their the updating of their databases if they don't take the right security precautions and it's easily done you know i run a couple of personal websites that use databases because WordPress requires them, and you have to be extremely careful and understand what you're doing to make sure that you're, you know, you are in, on top of that security. And to make mistakes like this when you're an ISP, it is just beyond a joke. And and I, well, think- I think that's
1: basically what the information commissioner's office had looked onto is that, you know, hackers will exist and will hack. But the fine here is really because the amount of information that was taken was because security, as you're highlighting, was just not up to snuff and attention. Yeah. Enough attention hadn't been paid well, to, it, to making this harder for hackers to to do.
0: It's difficult to know exactly. I mean, because I don't, I haven't read the whole report, and I don't know exactly what they how they got in. Um, aside from the fact it's Tiscali, but if if you have something that's an old system on your network, um, and you have to keep it running for some reason, and I'm not saying that that is a necessarily a bad thing, then you've got to make sure, haven't you, that it's firewalled from the rest of your network. You, you've got to make sure that if there's something on that's ancient and you, for some reason it has to be there then you've got to make sure it's safe and away from all of your data and that just didn't happen and i i i i was extremely annoyed at the time because talktalk Talk was not did not react to it in the way that i would expect a company that was genuinely um had a sense of you know ha- having made a mistake was they were sort of like oh we've done enough you know the ceo was pretty wet about the whole thing i i i was Enrage. And I am not a talk talk customer. I didn't really have anything to lose. But this is an, another one of the many failings of that company over the years. If you remember when they did free board, broadband, I mean, that was a, an absolute shower as well. Um So I don't know. Maybe people will learn. Maybe their customer base will just slowly drop off until it's not worth running anymore. But I, I, I certainly would, I would urge people not to go there because I don't think they t- have the right attitude to anything at all.
1: Well, TalkTalk Talk obviously had a bunch to say on this and one of the things that they'd said in a statement is that during a year in which government data showed nine in 10 large UK businesses were successfully breached, the TalkTalk Talk attack was notable for our decision to be open and honest with our customers from the outset. Unbelievable!
0: See, this,
1: gave them, this gave them the best chance of protecting themselves and we remain firm that this was the right approach for them and for our business.
0: But they accepted a- the decision. It's just an ex. It's just excuse after excuse. Unbelievable that there is literally no sort of contriteness in that statement at all it's not like look we're really sorry we were running an ancient database that had li- no protection on it whatsoever and we allowed people to get access to our whole network we're really sorry
1: you know that like, i think i think we have to point out they are also the hacks being investigated by scotland yard and i think that's still ongoing which may be why they perhaps. they can't say too much but, more on but this they could
0: definitely be a little bit more apologetic and a little bit less oh well we're just one of many companies that gets breached
1: I think they're highlighting that, you know, this is a major problem. It is. It's, it's not just them. But I know what you're saying. I'm but not trying to defend them because I agree with you. That's why IT
0: but. people <laughs> earn a lot of money. The idea is that if you get good IT people, they can keep you secure. I know people who do it who would, who would know these things and would be able to see But they're expensive. And that's, and that's what I don't think TalkTalk Talk did. I don't think they spent money when they should have done.
1: Well, I think the fine is very large, even if it's a record. I know what you're saying about it not being large enough. There's always the risk that it to give a near crippling fine could risk the company collapsing. And in the market of broadband and telco, um, you you don't want to reduce the competitive landscape by slapping a business crippling fine on one of the biggest players. But I, so I think I personally, my view is the fine was probably appropriate. Um, I mean, probably could have been a little bit larger, but still. Um, I do take your point. I mean,
0: I I come from a perspective of pure vengeance. You come from a perspective of sensible business. So, you know, (laughs) I'm glad that you're here to level out my ridiculous
1: rage. Well, one thing I'll highlight as well, which just in case any listeners have picked up on and heard that it was wrong. Strictly speaking, it was founded as part of the Carfan Warehouse Group, but they actually spun it out about five years ago. Right. Is they, it... they did a demerger. Okay. So is it so majority it runs... owned by the Carfan Warehouse still, or is it... Um... No, it's it's owned, I think it's majority held by the chairman. Um, right. Cham- Chambers, I think his name is. Yeah. Uh at um but but they you know they have other other shareholders and they're they 're listed on the london S- uh, stock exchange anyway that 's probably enough for uh talk talk for now. Let us know if you were affected by this. Do you think the fine was good enough? Do you want a little piece of that pot? Uh, we can't help with that, um, but we're certainly <laughs> welcoming your comments and vitriol or other perspectives at podcast at nate langson. Yeah, I mean, if you if you had if you were a victim of that, then you should definitely let us know what you think the right restitution for that would be. In the meantime, before we get to a couple of other stories, we're going to touch on Google's launch and talk about how its new flagship in-house, first-party phone, stacks up in against the UK market pricing-wise. And also look at a little bit of the some UK perspectives on the new Daydream VR system that Google's trotting out. Let's just have a little bit of global perspective on the rest of the tech world. Tom Merritt of Daily Tech News Show is here. Tom, tell us what's been going on last week on your podcast. Thanks, Nate. It's been a busy week on Daily Tech News Show. Veronica helped us understand why we want a robot baby that fits in a car's cup holder. Dr. Kiki explained how Moore's Law may be saved by a new one nanometer chip process. We explained Google's new role as a hardware company with those Pixel phones and Google Home. Got the scoop on what Arduino actually is from Donald Bell and laid out the whole confusing Yahoo email scanning mess with Shannon Morse. All that and more at dailytechnewshow.com. Thank you, Tom. All right, Ian. Um, this next story, this is one that you put into today's running order to discuss about a social network called Fling. Why don't you just give us the the, the lowdown? Yeah, on what, I'll, I'll keep on this. it brief
0: because obviously it's a it's already turning into a, a mammoth show. But basically, this this is something that I was uh, approached to write about some time ago, and I looked into it, and I found it. Reasonable. I I didn't like the app a huge amount. I thought it was okay. Can you Uh, explain what the app was at the time? Well, exactly. So it's it's a social network that operates a little bit like Snapchat. So you log into it. um, You have a sort of a world feed, which is people from all over the world sending photos and videos, but largely it's not that that part of it's not based on following people so you get to see a whole bunch of people that you wouldn't normally interact with and then you can pick your favorites and follow them as if it was on twitter but nothing stops in fact the good thing about it was that you you would always have a way to discover new people which i think is a failing of twitter um and other social networks in that it's not always easy to find people anyway the Social Network itself was pitched to me as being very reactively moderated so that um, if if anything sort of if any body parts turned up or if anything was inappropriate, they had a moderation team that would get rid of it. Now, at the time, I I thought it was automatic, but... Uh, it transpires in fact that that's probably not the case because what's happened since is that the uh, the holding company or the, the company that set this product up is a company called uni it's a british company um, I, I couldn't i can't remember exactly where it was headquartered but it went bankrupt uh, recently it's in receivership now so it has appointed a um, a receiver who is dealing with its assets and will sort of sell them off as it sees fit but the app is still available it, i believe it's been removed from Google play i can't find it on either the online store or the phone and the reason that I think it should be removed is that obviously since the moderation has gone offline since the um you know the company went into receivership it is now full of uh what I would describe as fairly hardcore adult material um, generated by the users in some cases or uh, stuff that they've filmed with their phones you know it's um It's a worry because the app itself was always certified as for 13 plus um, and there is literally no age protection stopping young people from having the app or from contributing to it. Now, I, I probably don't need to spell out what that could potentially mean. But if a, if someone under the age of 18 or under the age of 16 chooses to expose themselves on it, then they're basically broadcasting themselves as a child across the world. And that is an extremely troubling idea. Um, and because there's, there's literally nothing to stop that from happening and there's no moderation team at all in place. I called the receiver to ask if they had any plans for it, but they couldn't talk to me at the time and didn't return my call after I uh, after I left my details. So um, I don't know, really. It, I, I think it should come down from the Apple store. Um, I, I will obviously be trying to get that to happen as quickly as possible because it, it went from being a curiosity to me to being something that actually is quite worrying.
1: It's basically an example of what happens when social networks start to fade away. You know, one of the first things yeah. to, to go are the people who are working on it. You know, a lot of these services can actually stay online uh, you know, for quite some time, if they're just on the back of Amazon AWS, for example, or well, something true. where servers are just online and like the whole system's automa- automatic, then there's like a period between staff maybe leaving and the service being pulled offline because it's in debt or what have you, where it can still operate, but it's operating in a- in a grey zone. Maybe it's something we should be more mindful of. Potentially happening on other apps.
0: Yeah, well, that's the thing, and I mean, I, I, I've, I was considering. um I, I mean, I, again, this is all new to me. I don't really know what the appropriate action is. I, I kind of feel like it's something that the receiver should pull the plug on it because if they can't moderate it, if they can't uh, put the time into making sure it's safe, then that's potentially a legal issue for them i mean i don't know how that would pan out if the police got involved um but again that's that's a a route i considered i mean is it is it appropriate to report that to the the you know legal authorities who knows it's a it's an interesting question and i mean i can't be in charge of running the whole internet um but as i've discovered it i kind of feel like i should try and see it through at some in some way
1: Well, maybe for anyone listening who has got the Fling app or has kids using the Fling app, it's something to maybe have a quick look at. um, Yeah, definitely. If you've got kids who use it and you know they use it, get it off them as soon as possible. And in the meantime, Ian's got a story that he wrote on Forbes titled Social Network Converts to Amateur Pornhub Overnight, which you can Google or find in the show notes at natelangston.com slash podcast and read in more detail. I wanted to briefly talk about Google's Pixel. My opinion is anyone listening to this show uh, almost certainly knows that Google released its own phone and it has been widely covered on many, many other podcasts, not least Ian Morris on CNET. (laughs) Last week. So, we're not going to go over that. We'll just take it as an assumption you know, Google has launched a phone. Um, and I wanted to really have a look at just how this phone stacks up in the UK. Because what's really interesting about this phone is that, unlike many of the Nexus devices, which were always notable, I think, for their performance-to-price ratio. They were always, you know, medium-to-high-end performance for for a medium phone cost. And the Pixel is categorically not in that camp. And the the Pixel, for a 32-gig model, is going to launch in the UK at £599, which is exactly the same price as a 32-gigabyte iPhone 7, which costs £599, and is only marginally more expensive than Samsung's 32-gigabyte Galaxy S7, which is currently on on sale in the UK for £569. So we're looking at Apple, Google and Google's chief uh, client, well not client, but you know Android user and, and biggest smartphone maker in the world, Samsung, all saying a 32 gigabyte smartphone high end is £600. That is the current price, which, you know, we've seen this before, but when you see the big players all saying, this is what we want you to have. And they're all basically the same price. It becomes even harder to really differentiate between, you know, which one do you go for? I think, I and mean, that's where where we come in. I believe in. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's it's a it's a lot of money, isn't it? And I I I think it it, it leaves an interesting question around, um, you know, what, what is what what Google trying to achieve with this phone? Um, because they already have a Nexus. And I think that the answer to that is that they wanted to go into premium rather than into sort of the entry level.
1: Now, now you went to the launch, didn't you? I did, yes. Did uh, you get to use one of the Pixels? I did briefly.
0: um, Can you describe it? uh, It was a phone, Nate. Uh, It was a slab of of metal with a glass front. Uh, And not a particularly beautiful phone. Uh, Not a a horrifyingly ugly one either, I would say. Um, Just a fairly unexciting phone i mean i i feel like google really sold this on two things it, it's it's camera which is supposed to be good but we don't know until we actually get our hands on want to try it and um and that google assistant which is its main play yeah. but the weird thing about assistant is that while it will work on the phone google's not bringing the home product to the uk which i i find baffling because it's obviously if it thinks it will work in the context of the phone then why not have the specific hardware because um, I've always thought that people don't use their phone assistant, especially when they're out and about. It's all right to use at home, isn't it? But you feel like it. Probably idiot.
1: a range, a range of things. It'll come out next year. I mean, yeah. a lot of these things get delayed, don't they? No, we saw that true. we had a year's wait for uh, uh, the uh, the Amazon Echo. Yes, uh, and that's and it could just be a too. supply chain thing. Because I mean, that that's always a an issue.
0: But what I what I found quite interesting about it was um, it. it 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 doesn't it doesn't scream as a spectacular device to me and i i wonder who google's aiming at really because i mean it's always been sort of the case that if you walk into a, a shop and try and buy a phone you're most likely going to walk out with a samsung because they're good looking The the staff in the store have been well trained on Samsung phones because Samsung takes that very seriously. And that's always been how, you know, HTC has never been able to get grip on that market because Samsung spends a lot on marketing and stuff like that. Now, I've already seen a lot of adverts for the Pixel. Um, There's one on Old Street Roundabout. There's um, I've seen YouTube pre-roll adverts for it. So Google's obviously going really hard on this. But whether it can make a dent in in an already saturated market with a very, very expensive device is uh, a little bit worrying. And I think someone told me on the night that the EE has got the exclusive UK network deal, um, which, I again, I find a a baffling concept in this day and age. Uh, But apparently it's extremely expensive on a monthly basis. I mean, it would be. It's iPhone level pricing, isn't it?
1: It's all very, very high end. But I mean, one of the things that makes me think is you're right. You go into a shop, you're probably going to buy a Samsung. That's not actually necessarily great for Google and I do wonder whether a part of the pixel strategy is to inject more competition into the android marketplace I mean we saw this and and to basically get to get the people making Android phones to step it up a bit or to provide some differentiation. We saw this strategy almost identically to some extent with Microsoft and the Surface. People weren't making great Windows tablets, initially Windows 8 and more recently Windows 10. So Microsoft said, right, we are going to make a first party product. We're going to make the hardware that we're selling software to our clients and our customers in order to make and we're going to compete with our customers head on by making hardware but the strategy actually worked pretty well and it helped energize that market and it makes me wonder whether there's a similar effort with google and the pixel here and you know it did it with the chromebook it made the chromebook pixel which was a you know very expensive you know and really uh, quite pointless as well completely pointless but a beautiful piece of hardware and d- it demonstrated what could be done at the very high end of whatever software the device itself was built around but and this to me looks the same and it and it's you know part energizing the market perhaps part increasing pressure on an increasingly dominant single player in the market and partly a way for Google to you know just demonstrate this is the best Experience and force other competitors to to compete with them yeah I mean that's the thing isn't it it's uh I, I can see what you're saying, and I do agree
0: my issue I think with it is that i i i don't the the pixel was a gr- the the laptop was a great illustration of what you can do if you throw enough money at something um and the phone might be although it's it feels less inspiring than the, the than the laptop did. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, like I think I already feel like Android hardware has it nailed. There are so many good phones, like you know, there's I I I did like the the LG G five. I thought that was a good phone. It's not as well built, but it's still nice. The HTC ten is a really nice phone. The Huawei P nine, really nice hardware. Um, I don't feel like there's a dearth of
1: high end, or at least devices that feel very nicely made. Um, Sony, let's include Sony there. The most recent Sony XZ, I think, is a very nice yeah, piece of hardware.
0: I, that's, that's exactly it. I guess I think the problem is that there's really what Google needs to concentrate on is that sort of the, bringing down the price of the, of the high-end technology um, rather than just sort of releasing another high-end phone. Because I, I feel like Android could... I mean Android's already huge, you know, it's the biggest it's the biggest platform in the world, isn't it, for mobile. So, yeah. it, you know, there's there's very little that can take away from that. But I think um you know, Apple's done some clever stuff. The iPhone SE is a really nice reaction to mid-range Android phones and you get a really great camera and a lot of power in a phone that's smaller doesn't cost as much. Um, so I kind of feel like maybe that's the middle ground that Google should have gone for, but then it did that. But with they already Nexus. had that. Yeah,
1: but then- exactly, they already had that with the Nexus. That maybe it's the illusion of high end. It's saying, look, if you don't charge as much, people might think, well, it's it's cheaper, so it's not as good. But it's so I, eventually, it's not that, it's not beautiful enough to be.
0: It, it that sounds extremely shallow, and I do apologize, but it isn't stylish enough to be considered a, a high end device in my book. You look at. You know the iPhone, the Galaxy S7. Even if, if if you want this Huawei P9 that I've got in front of me, it's actually a really nicely designed phone. And the HTC, I think that the the Google is the worst looking of all those high end phones, if you ask me. And that's just a personal opinion.
1: I think the other aspect to this is that it it could be something that maybe they're they're targeting at certain markets. I mean, I've read that the Pixel itself. They're gonna spend. Google is looking at spending about 50, the equivalent of fifty million dollars in the UK alone just on ads for this one phone.
0: Mm. I wonder what you know? I wonder
1: what Samsung's UK ad spend is. I bet it's a lot more than that. Well, their global marketing for the S6 was over a billion dollars, yeah. I believe. I mean, that, that, but that's that's global. Yeah, that's but global. a lot
0: of that will feed in, won't it? A lot of it will be, you know, the same ads reversioned or stuff like that. Mm. So yeah, I, I take, you know, I mean, I think th- there are. I can see why Google wants to be a player in this game. I just, Google lacks focus. I, I've always, I've said this a lot of times. Google is like a, a child, a toddler, uh, you know, pick something up, it is really engaged in it for like one minute and then puts it down and never thinks about it again. And you can see that with the the trail of services that it shuts down
1: every year. So I, I, I think messaging app messaging apps oh. are the one that you definitely definitely see. Anything to do with social seems to be no, even, I mean, a good example of Google's uh, way of handling new and old products, you know, like it, you describe.
0: And, and again, I think that, that you know that Google does this thing where it it, it creates such excitement around launches, which is really good. Um, and it definitely should capitalize on that. But then what it does is it it restricts the access to them to the extent that people sort of fight and fight and fight to get on, and then when they do, it's a massive like letdown. I I remember I remember how much we fought to get on Gmail, and that was actually a good product. But do you remember the fight to get on Google Plus, and then it turned out to be rubbish, and then all the other stuff that we fought to get on over the years, like Google Wave and all those kind of things? And
1: and the, yeah, and- I mean the pro- the real problem with Google Plus though is that it was it was fantastic plumbing marketed as a house. <laughs> you know it was never meant it should never have been the front end to those services what it should have been is the back end to uh, all of google's services um which is basically what it's ended up becoming well before we go down too many more rabbit holes with this one um i think we've summarized enough where it stands in the uk market at least and the prices i looked at the us prices for those three phones the pixel the iphone 7 and the s7 and the the relative prices are identical to the dollar value um in terms of like how they compare to each other so this is obviously what looks like a global strategy at least, but uh, whether or not one should be paying attention to it maybe depends on what deals EE comes out with and also what you think about it in person but i mean from our perspective and from Ian who's used it it seems like it it's not as luxurious but it it's certainly very powerful and maybe and certainly it'll it'll get some features from Google that the regular Samsungs don't get particularly the assistant the Google assistant stuff so if that's enough to sway you to be interested then it's worth looking at otherwise it it does feel like it it may be slightly overpriced for the first iteration but let us know your thoughts if you've looked at specs and have an opinion on it already podcast at natelangson.com do we know when it's out no um soon um i know i know that the
0: Review samples will go out to reviewers next week. I'm not getting one, I don't think. Um, uh, the embargo
1: lifts on the 18th, and I think it goes on sale thereafter. So it'll be it's this mm. month. I just wanted to touch on a couple of other things briefly that came out of Google's event. The Daydream VR stuff, I think, looks very nice. Yep. And I was looking for a UK angle for to talk about the Daydream, the new VR headset, and I did find not one, but two interesting UK angles about the Daydream VR. Here is the first. There's an indie game developer. Develop, uh, he's called Mike Bithell, or Bithell, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name actually, Mike Bithell, Uh, who made a game called Thomas Was Alone. Very, very popular indie game. And he's working on a new puzzle game, specifically for VR, for the daydream called Earth Shape, which is about um, well, his description is, quote a game about the millennia spanning mission of the first astronaut to leave Earth and terraform the universe. Sounds interesting. But the really key thing that makes it very interesting to me is that Sue Perkins of The Great British Bake Off is doing the voiceover work for the game, which is extremely exciting. So just think about this when you're thinking shall i check out a google daydream just think vr sue perkins it's, it's a good it, sell it is a good sell the other potential sell is apparently there's some harry potter adventure that's going to hit the vr platform yeah i don't know much about it well, it was teased on
0: stage but i don't think it's, i don't think it's going to be very long i think it's like a a, a a quite a short vr experience and there's nothing wrong with that actually the vr play is a sensible one uh, because it's going to be a big thing the only problem is that um I don't know quite how it will stack up to Gear VR, which is very good because it has sensors and so all, You know, it's that tie in with Oculus. Um, the great thing about the Google one is it comes with a controller, so you don't have to be tapping the side of your head, which is a real downside from the, uh, the perspective of the Gear VR, although I believe they're now supporting uh, Xbox controllers on that. Yes, like the Oculus.
1: Yes, I believe exactly the Oculus. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm still not that excited about VR. However, I have decided that um, now I'm engaged and I'm getting married next year. I am going to try and film parts of my wedding in 360 degree video. So I'm going to get some of those Samsung cameras or whoever's making the best ones at the time next year and rig them up. And and record the that the ceremony and, and maybe parts of the wedding in three sixty and then maybe that's a good reason for me to have a headset because then I can relive my wonderful wedding day in three hundred sixty. That's an interesting degree. idea, actually. I'll be I'll be quite keen to see how that
0: pans out for you. That's uh, Well,
1: as one of my groomsmen, you'll yes, be there to witness I, it pretty I, much first hand, I, I won't you? Will be. I'll be I'll use my <laughs> own eyes to witness it in three hundred and sixty <laughs> degrees myself. Excellent. Well, one last story just before we end up the show. Um I wanted to note on the continuing rolling out of contactless payment systems, Apple Pay has now become available at Cooperative Bank and Metro Bank in the UK. Now, that brings the total number of banks or financial institutions who support Apple Pay in the UK to 20. I went through Apple's current list of banks, and I read American Express, Barclays, Barclay Card, Bank of Scotland, Cladsdale Bank, oh, they do my mortgage, Uh, Cooperative Bank, First Direct, Halifax, HSBC, Lloyds Bank, M&S Bank, MBNA, Metro Bank Nationwide, NatWest, Royal Bank of Scotland, Santander, TSB, Ulster Bank, and Yorkshire Bank. They all support Apple Pay now. And that made me think, how does Android compay pay? Well, I'm glad I asked, previous self. <laughs> uh, Android Pay now supports 13 banks in the UK. It doesn't support Metro Bank as announced this week by Apple, but it does support um, a bunch of other similar ones. Bank of Scotland, First Direct, Halifax, HSBC, Lloyds Bank, M&S Bank, MBNA, Nationwide, NatWest, Raw Bank of Scotland, Santander, TSB and Ulster. So if if you're curious about who has the widest range of banking options, it is still Apple, but the gap seems to be closing and I didn't bother looking at Samsung Pay because Samsung Pay. Well, it it hasn't launched in the UK anyway, has it? So... Can you not use it at all here I don't believe you can, no. Ah, I see. Interesting. I think they're in about eight or nine territories, but one of those territories is specifically Rio because I think they partnered with the Olympic team for that. Or uh, the global uh, every four year sporting event, as I think it's... Has to be called because of <laughs>
0: yeah 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 the, the you can't even, You're not even allowed to call it the games, are you? Or something ridiculous? Like, don't
1: get us sued. I can't. Oh, sorry. It. And yeah, yeah. You, know, you weren't even allowed. To that say money's the road
0: to <laughs> destination X or whatever it is. God, kill me now. Yes.
1: Anyway, that's going to do it, everyone, for this week. Thanks again for bearing with us while we had our little summer break there. It's possible, nay, quite likely, that we will have to miss a regular show next weekend um, because of continuing family events that are taking place. We may be able to get a special out or something, but I do promise, and you can quote me on this, from the week after next, the show will return weekly in its usual format. And, uh, and, we, and we look forward to that continuing but uh, we may have a, a slight gap next week but maybe we should let you know on Twitter yes I don't know that's probably what it's there for right that is exactly what it's there for excellent well uh, podcast at NateLangson.com or at text message pod is where you can find those I'm at Nate Langson on Twitter Ian is at ianmorris78 uh, I have been Nate Langson he's been Ian Morris and ultimately it's likely we will continue to be